0: Okay, welcome to the Environmental Justice Report slash Progressive News Network. This is our Sunday show, and we're kind of experimenting with the format a little bit. So some weeks we do Progressive News Network, other weeks we do Environmental Justice, depending on what's going on in the news. And this week, because once again of a rogue Supreme Court populated with a majority of ultra-conservative radicals, we have definitely a, a big story about environmental justice, and if you saw the advert, you are lucky because <clears throat> I'm in Facebook jail right now. This and by the way, uh, I'm Janine Maloff, the host and producer of both Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio as well as um, the Environmental Justice Report. And as I was saying, you know, normally I put the advert out like on Facebook. Um, I've been locked out of Twitter because somebody got mad at me there. So Facebook's fine. And this is really, you know, it's ironic. The ultra, alt-right, far-right Republicans, they're always always, uh, whining about cancel culture. You know, somebody criticized me, wah, cancel culture. Somebody called me mean, wah, cancel culture. This isn't cancel culture, okay? But what Facebook's doing is, especially progressive, and I was put in Facebook jail for I think 3 days, but my post will go lower on the feed for an additional month. And what was my crime according to Zuckerberg and company? Well, they said that a statement I made on Facebook constituted hate speech. Now, Mind you, I don't think the alleged journalists doing the fact-checking and the lawyers of Facebook really understand what hate speech is. Hate speech is basically when you say something incendiary uh, and threatening, and it's against a specific minority. Here is the – I wrote it down. Here is the exact quote that Facebook called out as hate speech, quote, The stupidity of the American people is terrifying, end quote. That's it. That's what Facebook called hate speech. But, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was having an Aspie year. I don't know. I mean, again, this is me getting a little ridiculous. Somebody needs to tell Zuckerberg, for one thing. In my opinion, yeah, I I wouldn't be shocked if he came out and said he's on the autism spectrum, whatever. But... um, Somebody needs to tell Zuckerberg, dude, that haircut that looks like somebody, looks like Priscilla, your wife, put a bowl on your head, <clears throat> you're not rocking it. it. It looks pretty moronic. It just, it looks horrible. Now, I better be careful because Facebook might call that hate speech, too. But, yeah, that is the remark that Facebook said constituted hate speech. I'll read it again. Quote. The stupidity of the American people is terrifying, end quote. It doesn't single out any specific minority, just doesn't. It's an opinion. It is about the general public, but, you know, what can I say? You know, uh, I have a friend that I, an old classmate, and, you know, she refers to Facebook as, um, you know, she uses the F-bomb. Oh, Hell, I'm going to say She calls Facebook fuckbook. Okay? I'm just going to say it. Because, frankly, to me, if Donald Trump and his minions can preach hatred, preach neo-Nazism, neo-Confederacy, whatever, I can drop the F-bomb. Because guess what? What they do is far more obscene than any, any number of F-bombs. But let, let's get to the story, okay? I digress. So, those of you that didn't see the advert, it says EJR. In other words, the environmental justice report. Supreme Court limits EPA power to regulate, definitely not pro-life. Now, this was today, I I wrote this advert the day it happened. Uh, This week, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in a case called West Virginia versus EPA. And this decision limits the authority of the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate environmental toxins and other forms of pollution. Now, this same, and an air quote, pro-life Supreme Court or SCOTUS has handed down a death penalty to the planet. So I'm going to discuss the future ramifications of this decision, and I will also discuss why Supreme Court justices must be forced to follow a code of ethics like any other judge. They presently do not have to. And one of the reasons, for example, Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett, her father was a corporate attorney for the fossil fuel industry, and he remains a lobbyist to the same industry. And it's actually the company named in this lawsuit. She should have been forced to recuse herself from this case. No such accountability or transparency standard exists within the Supreme Court. Apparently, they think they're the supreme priests. Uh, now, in the advert, both of you that did see it says Rick Spizak, our founder, has written a delightful essay for our audience, and I have to apologize to the audience and to Rick. I know he put it on the board, and I'm ashamed to say that um, I seriously need new glasses and I just didn't see it. My bad. We will we will run Rick's essay next week, and then of course we have our Jackass of the Week award, and it's going to be granted to a very Special recipient, by special I mean I suspect this person either was or needed to be in special education classes, you know, the little yellow bus. Uh, And I don't mean to mock people with disabilities, I taught people with disabilities for over 30 years. But this particular recipient learned nothing and she really needs to be on the little yellow bus because she prefers ignorance to enlightenment. Okay, So that's what's going on today. So let's move on to the first story. Part of the story, I'm going to read like I did last week. I don't usually do this. I wrote a piece that published in my Judicial Capture series that's running in BuzzFlash and it published back in February. And it actually is about this particular case and two standards that the SCOTUS referred to. One isn't mentioned, but it will be, okay? And those two standards are the major questions doctrine and the non-delegation doctrine. And this is the potential to dismantle practically all federal agencies, seriously. the reason Gorsuch was brought on on the SCOTUS, in my opinion, because he's the one that perfected this idea of the non-delegation doctrine. And even if he's really a horse's ass and a horrible person, Neil Gorsuch, when it comes to administrative law, is quite brilliant, and he knows how to tie it up so that the corporations always come out on the winning end. So I will read that as well. So I found this first story, all places, Fox News. Go figure. (laughs) I guess things are really that bad that even Fox, now it was Fox News, not their commentators, but even Fox had to run a halfway decent piece. And this was written by uh, Haley Chi Singh. And the headline is Justice Kagan warns parts of East Coast could be, quote, swallowed by the ocean end quote, in dissent, an EPA case. And to quote Justice Kagan, she said, quote, if the current rate of emissions continues, children born this year could live to see parts of the eastern seaboard swallowed by the sea, end quote. This is part of what Kagan wrote in her dissent. So the vote in this case of West Virginia versus EPA, v. EPA, all six conservatives voted to limit EPA power, no shock there, and the three justices dissented, and that was Kagan, Sotomayor, and Brewer. So Justices, I mean Breyer, excuse me, Justices Steve, Stephen Breyer and Sonia Sotomayor joined Kagan's dissent. Um, Kagan also wrote the following, quote, <coughs> excuse me, today the court strips the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, of the power Congress gave it to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time end quote and um, this was sourced by foxbusiness.com of all things ironically and kagan mentioned the dangers of rising temperatures and the, the disastrous things that are going to happen to our environment including quote rising waters scorching heat and other severe weather conditions that could force mass migration events political crises, civil unrest, and even state failure, end quote. And Kagan elaborated, she said that the earth was, quote, now warmer than any time, really in history. Um, She also wrote, included the idea that global warming could cause as many as, quote, 4.6 million excess yearly deaths. Now, she also said that the EPA's authority, does include curving greenhouse emissions. And it was right there in the parameters set, written into the law by Congress. You know, again, documented by foxbusiness.com. I can't believe I'm saying this. To quote Kagan, quote, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act directs EPA to regulate stationary sources of any substance that, quote, causes or contributes significantly to air pollution, and that may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare," end quote. And she explained how carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases do actually categor- do fit that description of endangering public health and welfare. Kagan also said that, excuse me, um, let me start again, Kagan also included the idea that when you regulate fossil fuels, that regulating fossil fuels was, quote, One of the most significant of the entities the EPA regulates, and curbing those emissions is a major factor in any effective strategy to, you know, address climate change. Now, Kagan wrote the dissenting opinion, uh, and that the EPA has been blocked from, and I'm going to read this straight from the Fox article, okay, quote, Hagan wrote in the dissenting opinion that the EPA has now been blocked from enacting generation shifting in power plants as a means of shifting electricity generation to lower emissions alternatives as a result of the decision. Okay. So what that means, basically, is that the EPA could tell these companies, you know what? You need to generate electricity. There's a lower emission alternative within your 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 network, you need to go to that, okay? Because right now you're breaking the law. Tagan went on to say, but they don't want to do that because lower emissions means it's going to cost the company a few shekels. In other words, to you know comply with the law. This is all about greed. Taken went on to say, quote, the court today issues what is really an advisory opinion on the proper scope of the new rule EPA is considering. That new rule be subject anyway to immediate pre-enforcement judicial review, but this court could not wait, even to see what the new rule says to constrain EPA's efforts to address climate change. End quote. So, I never really thought much of Kagan until now, but God bless her. Now you wonder, okay, of the six of the six justices who wrote the opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts. And he ruled that the EPA can't make these, what he called, sweeping rules that would, quote, overhaul industries without the approval of Congress, end quote, except that they have the approval of Congress. And it's right there in the actual law, Section 111 of the Clean Air Act. But, you know, these Supreme Court justices, the the conservatives don't really want to be bothered with technical, technicalities such as the law. And, you know, this is, basically, the case came from um, the Clean Power Plan, which was created in 2015 during the Obama administration. And the idea of the Clean Power Plan was to reduce emissions, carbon emissions at power plants, and that was, the, it, that included basically shifting from coal to natural gas, and then, and then finally shifting from coal to natural, shifting from coal to natural gas, and then from natural gas. To wind and solar. Okay? And that was as documented by Fox by foxbusiness.com in their energy section of all people. Um the court stayed the plan, which was under review in lower courts. When they that means they just kind of halted it. And then the plan was repealed by the Trump administration and then it was replaced with the ACE rule, which is the affordable clean energy. Now, the ACE rule is a piece of bullshit. Okay, but, you know, you had to know that. Anyway, um, the Biden administration, you know, saw that the ACE rule was vacated by the D.C. Court of Appeals. Okay? Uh, Meaning that they weren't going to follow the ACE rule either, and that prompted the repeal of the Clean Power Plan. Okay? Okay. Biden had no intention of reinstating the Clean Power Plan. He wanted to implement a new rule. And then citing Section 111, allowing the EPA to, quote, this comes straight from it, quote, regulate stationary sources of any substance that causes or contributes significantly to air pollution, and that may be may reasonably be anticipated to endanger public health or welfare. seems to me like the EPA has that authority, and it seems to me the Supreme Court has no business saying you went – too far, the EPA went too far when they don't even know what the rules are yet, okay? But West Virginia sued, and they cited this major questions doctrine, which you're going to learn about in my piece. And basically, the major questions doctrine, quote, states that there must be a clear statement for the court to conclude that Congress intended on granting the EPA such authority to regulate such a large portion of the economy, end quote, okay? Um, now there's more, all right, because the Roberts Court, you know, had a problem with this. He, John Roberts um, said in his opinion, the majority opinion, that it is, quote, this is the phrase he used, quote, not plausible, end quote, that Congress gave this authority to the EPA in Section 111. It's right there. Again, we don't know what the EPA rules were going to actually be detailed, the regulations. They decided, no, you don't have that right. Now, I'd like to ask Chief Justice John Roberts, you based your decision the EPA claim was, quote, not plausible, exactly what criterion establishes relative agency plausibility in his opinion? There's no criterion listed, nothing. Okay? Um What John Roberts wrote was the following, quote, Caffeine carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity may be a sensible solution to the crisis of the day. But it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme in Section 111D. A decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself. Or an agency acting pursuant to a clear de- delegation from that representative body. End quote. Now, this even though the West Virginia claimants cited the major questions rule, this is about the non-delegation rule also, and you're going to find out in a little bit. Okay. So there was also a piece in New Scientist. Again, this ruling for carbon emissions is a disaster. Okay, it just as it came down June 30th. And we're going to um, go straight to this. So we're going to go to this piece that I published back in late February. I was, and in this series I'm doing on that I call judicial capture. I was looking for underlying doctrines for which these justices craft um, this pre- this precedent bridge, if you will. And I didn't have to look too far, okay? Not at all. You know, you can tell these doctrines were written in the most likely in the offices of top corporate law firms. Make no mistake about it. And this affects everybody. Even if you're not what you call a tree hugger, understand when I'm going to be 63 in August, okay? When I was a kid, it was rare for anybody any kid to have asthma, very rare. Now you can go practically in, this is my opinion, any school, especially elementary school, half the class has inhalers. Okay. That just didn't happen by osmosis. This affects your kids. So even if you don't care a whit about other people, you should care about your own children because there will be nowhere on this planet to escape. So. This is my analysis of the larger problem. It ran in BuzzFlash. It's the first in the series of judicial capture. Judicial capture means that our judiciary, our courts, our judges have been, it, it suggests that they have been controlled and bought off by big corporate interest. Judicial capture is one of the worst insults you can give a judge. You're saying they're illegitimate. Make no mistake about it. Okay, so. This was published end of February. No, early February, I stand corrected. February 7th. Little did I know. So, and you can check out the entire series by going to BuzzFlash and just Google Janine Maloff or BuzzFlash judicial capture. Here we go. And, again, I'm reading it because it's all there. You know, there's no, no sense reinventing the wheel. So here we go. Whew. Janine Mala for BuzzFlesh, first in a series. Here's the headline. Dated February 7th. Supreme Court conservatives declare war against decades of regulations, potentially overturning decades of established law. See, the Roe decision wasn't the first step. You thought it was, but it wasn't. They've been planning this for a long time. (coughs) Excuse me. Let me get a little drink of water here. Mm. Again, headline, Supreme Court conservatives declare war against decades of regulations, potentially overturning decades of established law. Here we go. December 10th, 2021, multiple tornadoes struck the American Midwest including Missouri, Illinois, Arkansas, and Kentucky, destroying everything in their path. Amazon employees at the Edwardsville, Illinois Fulfillment Center were trapped in a flimsy tinfoil structure as a killer tornado stampeded through the sleepy rural setting. Personal accounts from workers and their families claim that Amazon kept these workers as virtual hostages. Those who wanted to leave were threatened with disciplinary action. Though multiple tornado warnings were issued all day, workers weren't allowed to access emergency weather reports because of the company's no phone policy, which forbids phones on the warehouse floor. Six Amazon employees died in that warehouse when the roof collapsed. These deaths were avoidable. In fact, you could argue that these deaths were facilitated by Amazon's systemic abuse of their employees. That same night, another lethal tornado hit the Mayfield Consumer Products Factory in Mayfield, Kentucky. Severe severe weather warning systems alerted the community some three hours before the tornado hit. Employees at the Mayfield factory were also being threatened by supervisors with disciplinary action, including termination if they left the facility. The employees remained on site and eight died in the rubble. And that was as documented by NBC News and the PBS NewsHour. In both instances, workers placed in danger by their employers have a legal pathway to receive compensation for their injuries and demand their employer be held accountable. This is due in part to various government agencies such as OSHA, whose job is to defend workplace safety. Without such agency regulation, workers have little to no recourse against abusive employers. These agencies determine and craft regulations meant to implement laws which are generally written in very vague and broad terms. In order to make the regulations fair and subject to various industry standards, these agencies are staffed by professionals in those specific areas of expertise. It should be unnecessary to explain this rationale, That a lawyer shouldn't be crafting regulations on something like pharmaceuticals, nuclear energy, or vaccine safety. But Supreme Court conservatives apparently never received a memo. I'm going to read that sentence again. This is saying lawyers should not be crafting this. It should be unnecessary to explain this rationale, that a lawyer should not be crafting regulations on something like pharmaceuticals, nuclear energy, or vaccine safety but Supreme Court conservatives apparently never received the memo. The conservatives on the court would would use two legal fictions to deregulate the government. I'll say that again. The conservatives on the court would use two legal fictions to deregulate the government and, yes, subsequently create a chaotic system which could, for instance, Assign a lawyer to write regulations for nuclear waste storage or decide whether vaccines are medically safe. The two legal fictions I am referring to are the, quote, major questions doctrine and the, quote, non-delegation doctrine. Both fictions were crafted specifically to undermine any regulations which did not receive a legislative permission slip from Congress for any rules or regulations not mentioned in the original legislation. Conservative jurists know these two fictions are based on little more than rhetorical quicksand, but they don't care. The intent of these two legal fictions is to bring all government agencies other than the military to a grinding halt. The conservatives on the Supreme Court are determined to create a judicial get out of jail free card for the growing state of corporate capture in the USA. Past month, this was again. I'm referring to January now. Just this past month, the Supreme Court reviewed and decided two cases specifically engineered to test the major questions doctrine. Both cases revolved revolve around vaccine mandates. The court is also scheduled to hear a case which would test non-delegation in the coming weeks, and that case is West Virginia v. EPA. If these legal fictions, if these legal fictions are allowed to stand, the Supreme Court could dismantle much of the federal government, especially in the areas of consumer safety, worker rights, and environmental concerns. The history of the major questions doctrine. Okay. Digressing for a second. Kiddos, you're about to get a history lesson. Back to my piece. The history of the major questions doctrine. The genesis of this fiction began with a few cases which questioned whether federal agencies exceeded their authority granted by Congress as they interpreted various applications of the law. The goal of this fiction is clear. The major questions doctrine was implemented so conservatives could nullify any any substantive agency authority and subsequent regulations. This was the first step required to dismantle much of government. The far right wing is patient, if nothing else. Historically, there were three specific cases which served as the prerequisite to dismantling regulations which the business community was determined to kill. Okay. Again, I'm going to deviate from the piece for a minute. This goes all the way back to FDR. Okay. Back to my piece. Communications Act of 1934 and major questions kryptonite. The first case dealt with the Communications Act of 1934, which established tariffs, in other words, taxes, on telecommunications companies through the administration of the FCC or Federal Communications Commission. In 1994, the Supreme Court ruled that the FCC couldn't unilaterally, quote, modify tariffs for the telecommunications industry, deciding that such modifications would constitute a rewriting A revision of the Communications Act of 1934. Such changes would have to come about through the legislative process. The fact that this action on the part of the FCC would have virtually abolished those tariffs is not the major point. The goal of these judicial activists was to discredit the delegation of powers to federal agencies. I'm going to read that again. The goal of these judicial activists was to discredit. The delegation of powers to federal agencies as an illegitimate and thus unconstitutional grant of power to the administrative state fda that means food and drug administration fda v brown and williamson tobacco core case the second case occurred in 2000 and dealt with the tobacco industry after undeniable testimony that tobacco does cause cancer the food and drug administration was unable to decide whether those same tobacco products should be regulated because quote, Congress had implicitly denied that it that jurisdiction through other anti-smoking laws, end quote. And this is this what this was documented by a piece in the New Republic uh, entitled Neil Gorsuch has raised some major questions about the major questions doctrine, as well as documented by um, the actual case documented in www.law.cornell.edu. The Chevron deference. And finally, we have the third case, otherwise known as the Chevron deference. This case attempted to reverse the attack on federal agencies by requiring courts to, quote, defer to federal agencies, end quote. Any question of agency scope or delegated authority to interpret and act on established federal law. The Chevron deference represented a direct repudiation of the major questions doctrine. Established by the Supreme Court in the 1980s, the Chevron deference permitted federal agencies to devise regulations as an application of established law. The court deferred to agency expertise in various professional fields from within the ranks to create policies. This deference was believed to be more accountable to democratic needs than the courts. Conservative scholars and litigators didn't share this belief. Rather, they viewed the Chevron deference as a power grab by federal agencies. Neil Gorsuch again. Neil Gorsuch brought the major questions doctrine out of mothballs in the case of the Biden vaccine mandates, which the court identified as BST Holdings versus OSHA. The Supreme Court struck down the Biden mandate, which could have saved some 84 million lives, but that isn't the only concern. Excuse me. The implementation of the major questions doctrine sets the stage for further judicial incursions against any government regulations that conservatives or corporate interests despise, and Justice Neil Gorsuch wasted no time invoking this judicial fiction during the adjudication of the case as a direct challenge to the older Chevron deference model. To quote Matt Ford writing for the New Republic, quote, Neil Gorsuch's recent invocation of the major questions doctrine has ominous implications for anyone not keen on watching the government drown in dysfunction, end quote. And that was documented um, in the New Republic um, on that same article. In fact, Ford's piece in the New Republic explained both fictions as conservative creations created to dismantle government regulations by making the daily workings of agencies wholly dependent on congressional approval for any actions, no matter how trivial. To quote Matt Ford, quote, this obscure judicial precept, which has mostly developed over the past two decades, first arose in a series of cases where the court was asked to decide whether federal agencies had exceeded the power given to them by Congress when interpreting federal law. The thrust, of the, doc- the thrust of the doctrine is relatively simple. If a federal agency wants to do something big, it must have a clear mandate from Congress to do so." End quote. Now, given the fact that most legislation, this is back to my piece, so that was as documented by the New Republic piece. Now, given the fact that most legislation is written in broad and often vague terms, such a mandate would force government agencies to come to a grinding halt. Gorsuch would soon claim that the major questions doctrine is a necessary and constitutionally supported act as indicated in his own words to quote from the New Republic again. Quote, this is Gorsuch, This Mildred Gorsuch's own words, quote, why does the major questions doctrine matter? It ensures that the national government's power to make the laws that govern us remains where Article I of the Constitution says it belongs with the people's elected representatives if administrative agencies seek to regulate the daily lives and liberties of millions of Americans, the doctrine says, they must at least be able to trace that power to a clear grant of authority from Congress, end quote. Now, deviating from my piece, that sounds very benign and very reasonable on the surface. But it would be like if you were trying to... Um, Discipline your children. You had to get a permission slip from Department of Family Service every time you wanted to give them a timeout. Just doesn't work. Back to my piece. And yet, what would constitute, quote, a clear grant of authority from Congress as Gorsuch pontificates? Would every bit of daily minutiae, no matter how inconsequential, automatically require a congressional permission slip? Either in the form of the original legislation or as newly formed amendments signed off into law, could any organization function in a meaningful way under such? Um, sorry, lost my place here. Could any organization function in a meaningful way under such Uber micromanagement? The legislative log jams which will result as a byproduct of this philosophy would essentially nullify all federal agency action that conservatives find abhorrent. For Gorsuch to rely on this pseudo-academic relic merely puts his hypocrisy in prominent display. Matt Ford added that the revival of major questions doctrine is less about returning power to Congress and more about a cynical judicial power grab, which is consistent with the conservative theology of that wing, a theology which is desperate to eradicate the administrative state. Now we go to the second half. Okay, my little drink here. <coughs> Excuse me. Back to my piece. The non-delegation doctrine, the other half of this judicial power grab, this next judicially, technically legal fiction, otherwise known as the non-delegation doctrine, was best characterized by Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan. She followed the logical steps forward regarding non-delegation and asserted that if open-ended delegations of power to federal agencies is deemed unconstitutional, quote, then most of government is unconstitutional, dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement its programs. Okay, I'm gonna read that part again. I want it to sink in, okay. Kagan asserted that if open-ended delegations of power in other words, demanded by the non-delegation doctrine. If open-ended delegations of power to federal agencies is deemed unconstitutional, then, quote, most of government is unconstitutional, dependent as Congress is on the need to give discretion to executive officials to implement its programs, as is documented by SupremeCourt.gov. Concerning Kagan's remarks, it's not much of a stretch to conclude that rendering most of government unconstitutional is the long-term goal of the far right and their corporate masters. The GOP has been quite vocal about their quest to destroy all federal regulation outside the criminal codes. That's it, outside the criminal codes. GOP darling Grover Norquist said it best as he waxed fondly on the destruction of regulatory government when he infamously described the government of his dreams to quote Grover Norquist. Quote, I'm not in favor of abolishing the government. I just want to shrink it down to size where we can drown it in the bathtub, okay? And that came from webarchive.org. As it turns out, Neil Gorsuch has provided the means to achieving Norquist's goal by revising the non-delegation doctrine. In fact, Gorsuch is a paper trail in this fiction through what is known in judicial circles as the Gundy case, but the origins of the non-delegation trace back to FDR and the New Deal. FDR and how delegation was used to destroy part of the New Deal. The non-delegation doctrine traces its creation to the New Deal and basically claims that no branch of the government has the right to delegate their duties and subsequent powers to another branch. This is the argument conservatives use to attack FDR's New Deal. In the SCOTUS or Supreme Court case known as ALA Schecter Poultry Corps versus the United States, Conservatives challenged the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which granted the President the power to designate and approve quote, codes of fair competition. Um, let me start again. Okay, So in the Supreme Court case known as ALA Schechter Poultry Corps versus the United States, Conservatives challenged the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, which granted the President the power to designate and approve quote, codes of fair competition affecting big industries and guaranteed the workers the right to collective bargaining. And that was in our documents.gov. The case that ended the National Recovery Act involved the poultry industry, but the effects of this case were much farther reaching. The act mandated that, quote, the NERA, in other words, the National Industrial Recovery Act, now known as NERA, quote, The NERA sanctioned, supported, and in some cases enforced an alliance of industries. Antitrust laws were suspended, and companies were required to write industry-wide codes of fair competition that effectively fixed price and wages, established, quote, let me start again. Sorry about that, folks. The act mandated the following, quote, the NERA sanctioned, supported, and in some cases enforced an alliance of industries. Antitrust laws were suspended, and companies were required to write industry-wide, quote, codes of fair competition, end quote, that effectively fixed prices and wages, established production quotas, and imposed restrictions on entry of other companies into the alliances. The act further called for industrial self-regulation and declared that codes of fair competition for the protection of consumers, competitors, and employers were to be drafted, for the very industries of the country and were to be subject to public hearings. Employees were given the right to organize and bargain collectively and could not be required as a condition of employment to join or refrain from joining a labor organization. And that is from our documents, National Industrial Recovery Act 1933, our documents.gov. Okay, back to my piece. Though NERA was not fully supported by either side, there were components which helped the average worker, especially the right to collective bargaining. The Supreme Court killed NERA in the Schechter case and issued two decisions which abolished the increased lawmaking power it granted the executive. The Schechter case resulted in the Supreme Court declaring that, quote, Congress is not permitted to abdicate or to transfer to others the essential legislative functions with which it is thus vested, end quote and that's from supreme.justia.com. The second case was the Panama Refining Company versus Ryan, where the court decided that the specific problem with the NERA statute was that, quote, Congress left the matter to the president without standard or rule to be dealt with as he pleased, permitting, quote, such a breadth of authorized action as essentially to commit to the president the functions of a legislature rather than those of an executive or administrative officer. And that's, again, from Supreme, supreme.justia.com. In other words, the executive tasked with enforcing the law, not creating it. These two cases form the legal framework that is now known as the, quote, non-delegation doctrine, which asserts that Congress cannot, under any circumstance, air, quote, delegate its legislative power away to another branch of government. While it is wise to prevent any president from obtaining the immense power that NERA granted, The concerns of non-delegation architects focused on restraining actions which produced a level playing field for the – I'm sorry, let me start again. While it is wise to prevent any president from obtaining the immense power that MIRA granted, the concerns of non-delegation architects focused on restraining actions which produced a level playing field for the average worker and lacked the principled stance they shouted from the rooftops. Had FDR been formed in the mold of an autocrat like Trump in the 21st century, such arguments would not have come from conservative ranks. So given this potential to logjam government, how would this doctrine play out in actual court cases? Our latest clues reside with the case known as West Virginia v. EPA and its predecessor, the Gundy case. West Virginia v. EPA, a direct threat to agency authority. Turns out I was right. West Virginia v. EPA poses the gravest threat to environmental protection to date. It could substantially dismantle government as we know it. To quote from Ian Milheiser's piece in Vox, quote, Neil Gorsuch's dream case could be the Earth's nightmare, end quote. And that's, as documented by Vox, um, a new Supreme Court case could gut EPA power on climate change. This case represents the latest incarnation from a string of seemingly endless litigation against the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, which was never implemented. How Obama's Clean Power Plan actually works, that's as documented by that Vox article. So the Obama-era Clean Power Plan was never implemented. The plan was abandoned and relegated. So let me start again. Sorry, folks. This case represents the latest incarnation from a string of seemingly endless litigation against the Obama-era Clean Power Plan, which was never implemented. The plan was abandoned and relegated to a legislative zombie state. The Biden administration stated last February it would not reinstate the program, yet the litigation determined to destroy it continues. So why would the fossil fuel industry continue a battle against a dead policy? Well, the battle isn't limited to the Obama plan. The fossil fuel industry wants the court to strike out any substantive action taken by the EPA to limit greenhouse gases. That's the short game for conservatives. The long game is far more menacing. West Virginia v. EPA could be the case, which grants the Supreme Court a veto power or, I'm sorry, let me start again. I lost my, I'm sorry folks, it'll be much better once I get new glasses. Let me start the beginning of the paragraph again from my own piece. Okay. Oh, so why would the fossil fuel industry continue a battle against the dead policy? Well, the battle isn't limited to the Obama plan. The fossil fuel industry wants the court to strike down any substantive action taken by the EPA to limit greenhouse gases. That's the short game for conservatives. The long game is far more menacing. West Virginia v. EPA could be the case which grants the Supreme Court a veto power, not only over the Biden agenda, but also a veto power over any government action or regulation conservatives challenge. And that's documented in Vox by the Supreme Court's coming war with Biden, explained. Unfortunately, there's far more at stake, according to Ian Milheiser, writing for Vox. To quote Milheiser, quote, the most aggressive arguments against the Clean Power Plan wouldn't just apply to government. Let me start getting Quote. The most aggressive arguments against the Clean Power Plan wouldn't just apply to environmental regulation. They could also fundamentally alter the structure of the U.S. government, stripping away the government's power on issues such on issues as diverse as workplace safety, environmental protection, access to birth control, overtime pay, and vaccination. And that's as documented by Vox in a piece, a new Supreme Court case could gut EPA EPA power on climate change. That's a lot to take in. I'm gonna read that sentence again. I want it to sink in, the long game. West Virginia v. EPA. This is the one that was handed down just the other day. Quote: Could this is my own writing? Could be the case which grants the Supreme Court a veto power, not only over the Biden agenda, but also a veto power over any coming government over any government a- action or regulation conservatives challenge. And according to Milheiser, to quote him, the most quote the most aggressive arguments against the Clean Power Plan wouldn't just apply. To environmental regulations. They could also fundamentally alter the structure of the US government stripping away the government's power on issues as diverse as workplace safety, environmental protection, access to birth control, overtime pay and vaccination end quote. Let that sink in. Let's sink in back to my piece. The ramifications are enormous. Hundreds of laws could be severely weakened to the point of uselessness or perhaps deactivated if the non-delegation doctrine is allowed to dictate and create a judicial administrative state. Non-delegation comes in different forms. Just when you thought things couldn't get any more confusing, the Supreme Court conservatives step in and make the situation worse. Apparently, there are various degrees of non-delegation which only the court conservatives can decipher. Like high priests guarding the sacred text, they determine the flavor of the month regarding non-delegation. Presently, there are two dominant theories on non-delegation, one coming from Justice Clarence Thomas and the other from Justice Neil Gorsuch. Both represent a judicial power grab for the Supreme Court. Of the two, Clarence Thomas's interpretation is far more radical and would simply deny Federal agencies the right to craft any binding regulations, period. Justice Thomas claims that any government policy or decision which, quote, involves an exercise of policy discretion, end quote, in turn requires, uh, quote, an exercise of legislative power, end quote. And that is from SupremeJustia.com. Obviously, this opinion would immediately and retroactively dismantle all agency regulations, possibly going back for decades. Important and hard-fought existing legislation, like the Clean Air Act, would be nullified unless Congress passed a new law which specifically listed every power. Anything omitted by poorly written legislation would not exist. Pair this interpretation with the deadlock generated by the filibuster, and we have a recipe for chaos. The other theory announced on that. Yeah, sorry, The other theory on non-delegation comes from a dissenting opinion in the case of Gundy v. United States, written by Neil Gorsuch. This opinion stated that any law which authorizes or delegates a federal agency the power to issue regulations must be, quote, sufficiently definite and precise to enable Congress, the courts, and the public to ascertain whether Congress's guidance has been followed, end quote. And that's from SupremeCourt.gov. Gorsuch's excuse me, Gorsuch's approach is in some ways more dangerous than Thomas's. The problems with this statement are vast. What would constitute the criterion for quote for the quote sufficiently definite and precise standard? Who would decide this? This vague language allows the court to take power it was never intended to have. So now, conclusion. I hope you learned something. It's a little drink. Conclusion, as FDR warned in 1937, quote, the Constitution of 1787 did not make our democracy impotent, end quote. And that is uh, from historymatters.georgegmu.edu, excuse me, uh, comes from FDR's second inaugural address. So I'll read it again. As FDR warned in 1937, quote, the Constitution of 1787 did not make our democracy impotent, Unquote. Yet, that is exactly what present conservatives on the Supreme Court are doing by dismantling government via judicial fiat. Agencies like OSHA were created to prevent the type of employee abuse we witnessed December 10th when Amazon employees had to choose between their jobs or their very lives. Like the trapped Amazon workers who died due to employer abuse, we are trapped in an existential spiral into the new slavery 2.0. This is a political and economic slavery which allows no real judicial relief. The radical conservatives on the Supreme Court have abused the trust of their appointed office. They steal power by using legal fictions. I'll say again. They steal power using legal fictions born from rhetorical deceit and entrenched hubris. Justices Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Coney Barrett have cynically banded together to sacrifice actual democracy on the altar of litigious procedure and judicial dictates. The architects of this power grab, namely Kavanaugh, Thomas, and especially Gorsuch, have have created a framework to justify this new slavery 2.0. There are no physical shackles or whips, but it's slavery. This is the slavery of sweatshop labor, which demands workers risk their lives for starvation wages. This is the slavery which grants billionaire employers like Jeff Bezos the unearned privilege to abuse employees and face no legal consequences for that abuse. This is the slavery that cynically strips workers of any rights other than the right to work until they drop dead. Political scientists may term this legal structure oligarchy or even predatory capitalism. But such jargon merely disguises the true nature of this judicial conspiracy, which is quite obviously slavery. A former Supreme Court used similar rhetorical deceit to justify slavery in the Dred Scott case. Today's SCOTUS Supreme Court conservatives use equivalent rhetorical deceit to justify a new slavery based not on race, but on employment servitude. What the nation witnessed on December 10, 2021, was a mere prelude to the corporate abuse SCOTUS conservatives would unleash on the average American daring to demand something we have never had, an actual democracy. And that's my piece. And you can see, I don't mince words. That felt particularly appropriate given that tomorrow is the 4th of July, Independence Day. You know, in the past, I began to understand why uh, descendants of black slaves don't like the 4th of July, because it represents a pack of lies. It just does. The United States has the promise to be something wonderful, But it has never fulfilled that promise, and especially not for people of color, religious minorities, the LGBTQ population, and women in general. It just hasn't. And with the Roe decision, it's even more so. So the fact is, on this 4th of July, I will not be celebrating. This hard-nosed bee is going to be taking a knee to the 4th. Read, about, read my piece, all right? It gives you more details about the major questions and the non-delegation doctrine and how this is so treacherous. And this is something that mainstream media really didn't bother to cover. Keep in mind, I published this beginning of February. Okay, so that is our big story here now. Hopefully I won't disconnect. I am looking for something specific here. Give me a second. I know it takes a few minutes because I'm not too good with with technology. I hate to sound like a stereotype myself. So let me see. Give me a minute. That's I'm having a hard time doing this. Here we go. So we are getting ready right now, you know, for our jackass of the week report. Let me get it started here. We have a very special Jackass or should I say, Jenny this week. It's the Jackass of the Week Report. The Jackass of the Week Award, rather. Bray on, Jenny, bray on, because this week it's a Jenny. So this week, our Jackass of the Week Award, or rather, Jenny, that's an female Jackass goes to none other than U.S. Congresswoman Lauren Bobert. And this week, she really outdid herself. Apparently, Ms. Bobert really just, it, she embraces her ignorance. She is so proud of her ignorance. It's beyond belief, okay? And this week, she was making a speech. And first of all, I think she was at a church or whatever, and and she was complaining about the January 6th Commission, and she was um, saying that quote, there, that, I'm going to try and imitate her stupid accent. Quote, there is no difference between this and the Taliban. We must oppose the. Okay, so now let me take back. That was the wrong one. I stand. So basically, Lauren Boebert. She says she's tired of separation of church and state. And this was just, it was so stupid, okay? She just, um, apparently, she was at a speech at a place called the Cornerstone Christian Center in Basalt, Colorado. And this is ahead of her primary. And she argued that, quote, the government is not supposed to direct the church, okay? Not at all. Um. I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. That's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like they say it does. End quote. Now, mind you, she earned a round of applause from this church group. Okay? Now, keep in mind, Miss Bobear needs to understand it is in the Constitution. It's called the Establishment Clause. All right? And basically it says that the government cannot establish any sort of, you know, religion, all right? It, it's right there in the First Amendment. You can't miss it. Um, so it's right there in the Bill of Rights. It says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And Roger Williams, who founded, according to the Hill.com, who founded Rhode Island, deciphered the clause as, quote, a wall or hedge of separation quote, between the wilderness of the world and the garden of the church. Um, But, you know, once again, um, you know, we have Supreme Court justices, conservatives that, as Sonia Sotomayor has said, that the court, quote, continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. Uh, In a few years, the court has upended constitutional doctrine, end quote. And then... Basically, um, this is what Bobert had to say. Quote, the reason we had so many are our, our overreaching regulations because the church complied. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That's how our founding fathers intended it. Well, Miss Bobert, I hate to tell you this. you are to- No, I don't hate I really am gleeful to tell you this. You're, you have it totally wrong. The Establishment Clause clearly dictates a separation of church and state. You can believe what you like. You may not enforce it on anyone else, and it's certainly against any sort of theocracy. But, you know, once again, you can't really confuse Lauren Bobert with facts. You just can't. Because, once again, Ms. Bobert has proven there isn't an ignorance stance she doesn't like, and for those reasons, there's so many, Lauren Bobert is awarded the Jackass of the Week Award. Rayon Lauren, Rayon! Oh, she never sounded better. She never looked better too. Okay, so that is our show for today. I hope you learned something from it. I hope you get involved, all right? This is the media. I hate using the term media. Journalists are supposed to alert you to what's going on so that the population can become involved. The conservatives didn't come up with this stuff overnight. They've been working on it for decades. They despise democratic rule. Make no mistake about it. And instead of reacting, progressives need to, one, stick together. You may not like the guy next to you or the gal next to you. You don't have to agree with them on everything in order to have efficient teams. But we need to stick together and we need to fight like hell. And I would say that uh, progressives in Congress, especially in D.C., I almost say it, there is no place in the Democratic Party for progressives. There just isn't. I think they need to either break away or if they don't break away, then I think progressives need to technically remain Democrats for their primary so they don't have to uh, face the extra burden of qualifying on the ballot. But once they win their primary and once they're in office, they need to band together as a caucus that is unmovable. So when the Democratic, when the corporate Dems try and dictate something, you just go, no, no deal. And you'll lose without us. We need to play hardball because this is not just for us. This is for the future of our children, the future of democracy itself. Okay, this two-party system is a fraud. But what I tell people is your conscience during primaries. Then in the regular election, if you have to vote for a Dem, you do, but then you hold their feet to the fire. Believe me, I, I, I am hated by many in D.C., them and Republican alike. Because, again, they don't like truth tellers. Anyway, hope you learned something from this. I'm rambling on right now. Um, Check out my writing on BuzzFlash. I'm also featured often on, um, I'm also featured columnist on Nation of Change and op-ed news. And again, for Lauren Bobert, Brayon Jenny Brayon and that's our show from the Environmental Justice Report with me Jenny Morales have a nice monday